Well, hello and welcome to the Darren Clarkson King podcast. I'm Darren Clarkson King with my podcast. You guys will know that if you listen with any regularity. But if you do listen, you'll also know that these podcasts are not regular in any way, shape or form. They're not funded in any way. They're not scheduled in any way. And I just rattle on. For those that don't know, I'm a whitewater kayaker, principally based in the Himalayas. But in these times of COVID, I'm in Snowdonia in North Wales. I thought I'd talk today about stuff that I've seen happening in social media and in free ads and on the roofs of cars around Snowdonia. And while I talk, I'll be drinking my coffee as per usual, just like this. So what I've noticed on the roofs of Snowdonia, cars in Snowdonia, on social media, on auction websites, is the price of second-hand kayaks. Yeah, market seems to be a little bit high, doesn't it, for used product? And we all need to, if we're selling product, we want to get the best price possible. But I do think that if we are selling product, we need to be honest about it. And if we're buying it, we need to be honest about our expectations. Now, it is okay to sell a 20-year-old boat. It's more than fine. Except don't be saying that it's worth loads of money and it's suitable for white water, sea and surf, because it's probably not, unless it's been super well looked after. You know, and the plastic will have degraded. If it's a, if it's a really old 70s fiberglass boat, then it's probably worth making into a chicken shed or a plant pot. Excuse me, the same goes for paddling gear. If you're selling a PFD, be honest about the use it's had. And it's fine, isn't it, to have a PFD that's hardly been used, is maybe a year old, and you sell it with the history. It's also fine that if you've got a PFD in a cupboard somewhere and you've not used it, to, to use it. That's probably fine. But make sure you float test them. You know, Make sure that the zips work and the harnesses work and the straps work and everything's good. You might be getting back into kayaking after a long stint and you might have all this old gear kicking about. Maybe a decade old. And you might be thinking, I spent good money on that a decade ago and I've not used it, so I'm going to use it again. But make sure you check it. It's, you know, if you were working in an office and everyone else has got an iMac, you wouldn't turn up with a Commodore 64, would you? And expect to do the same job. And that's the same when it comes to kayaking or canoeing. If you turn up with your Schlegel paddle, and everyone else has got Werner's, yeah, it might be good that your Slagle paddle is still going strong because it's got that metal tip blade with some sort of steel girder shaft. And it's a 90 degree feather, and that's probably fine, it's probably what you were used to. But you may perform a lot better with that Werner. You might not, you might find it a struggle to adapt to a lesser feather paddle or a shorter paddle. But that's okay, isn't it? You know, it's just about being aware. Hmm. 
excuse me, just about being aware of these things. But if you are buying secondhand, ask about the history of product. I've just got myself a couple of old boats that I managed to get, you know, some good deals on. I'm never going to use them commercially as a guide. I'm never going to use them, you know, on trips where I'm looking after people because my and I'm super hard white water because the boats might fail. But I've got them as nostalgia pieces. Boats that I remember from my youth. And I'm going to take them out and I'm going to paddle them. Not because they're good boats necessarily, but because they're, they're part of our kayaking heritage. And it's nice to get back into those boats that, as a, as a kid, when I was learning, I aspired to use that boat. And maybe I never did. Like, I was never good enough to use a Gatino. And I was never good enough to use a Corsica. You know? So, boats like that are really nice historical pieces. They're probably appalling boats to actually use in relation to modern boats, but they give some grounding to where we are historically in the sport. And the same goes for paddles. Excuse me. When I was young, one of my kayaking mentors was a woman called Marianne Spender, sadly passed away. And she taught me, and I think I've probably mentioned this before in podcast, she taught me about not just enjoying the adventure, but enjoying the stories around the campfire and making adventure in everyday activities, whether it was buying a coffee or driving to a trip, but making that part of the adventure, not just the way to get to the adventure. Stories are about you know, practical jokes, sending inappropriate birthday and Christmas presents to your friends, acting as a mentor to teenage boys and showing them that it was okay to push the boundaries a little before you got reined in, learning to develop yourself and your confidence, to put challenges in place within a sort of dynamic risk assessment. One of the trips that we ran was to the Washburn, in the Washburn, for those that don't know, is a dam-released river in the north of England. Excuse me. It's class two, class three. Not very wide. And in the days that I first started paddling it, if you paddle your kayak sideways on the Washburn, the chances of you getting your boat pinned were super high. Because your boat was probably wider than the river. I remember turning up the first day to paddle the Washburn with Marianne. One of my early white water experiences, seal launching in, catching an edge. We've all been there. When you catch that edge of your boat, I had a dancer, I mean, it's not like it's got a big edge and a hard rail, is it? And you power flip, and the river's not very deep. And all you can imagine, and you guys can imagine this, I'm sure, is rocks whizzing past your head or clattering your head. Doom, doom, doom. Struggling to roll, perhaps, or pull it, moving your hand down your paddle so that you do a pilata roll, or pulling the skirt and swimming, and swimming in a shallow river, not having the knowledge to lay on your back with your legs in the air, banging your legs as you roll over rocks, all that type of stuff. But you look back on those experiences and you realise that 
they were really good grounding for later in life. Just really good grounding in general, not just for kayaking, but for actually getting knocks. Because sometimes in life you do get knocks. And you get battered and you get bruised, but you get back on and you continue and you grow and develop. And that's what kayaking is about, isn't it? It's about challenges and it's about getting on and perhaps getting knocks, but getting back in and doing it again. We used to go every year to Anglesey with the club. And there's a place called Four Mile Bridge. For those that know it, it's not a very big, it's a tidal shoe that goes into a bridge, doesn't it? You know, it's the ebb and flow of the tide. It's not got a big wave on it. It's got quite a vicious eddy line when you're learning, but it's not anything hard. And going in there and practicing eddy turns, practicing S turns, jumping off the bridge into the flow, getting covered in salt water, taking those knocks. And that's what it's about, isn't it? And COVID times, I think, have allowed us to sit back and realise that, yeah, we do get knocks in life and we're getting back on with things. I've seen lots of people out and about getting back into the sport of kayaking, maybe after a hiatus of 12 weeks, maybe they've not been in a boat. And they expect to go back to the level, and I'm sure I've mentioned this before, go back to the level that they were when they left. Excuse me. But is that is that what we should be doing after a hiatus of time? Should we be going back and expecting the ferry glides to be as smooth? Should we be expecting us to be able to surf that wave as well as we always surfed? When we pack our bags to go on our trips, if we do it regularly, it becomes second nature that we pack the helmet and we pack the PFD and the dry top. But for a lot of people, after a hiatus and paddling, they have to think a lot about it. And if you've got to think about what, you, what you're packing, you've certainly got to think about how you paddle. And for me personally, I've, I know that I've dropped down in the, in the grade of water I want to paddle. And I'm, make, but I'm, and I'm going back to rivers that are like old friends so that I'm able to reconnect with why I do this sport and why it's my lifeline. You know, and that's fine, isn't it? And it's nice to go back into product that, you know, sits us in our history, going back into the points I'm making on using old gear. Go back into that, examine, those pro examine that the time we have with that, those products, but know that there are better things around there. I, you know, the first time I went from a dancer into a more sporty boat, which was a magic bat. And I'm seeing these on eBay, dancers and magic bats on eBay, auction sites, gum trees, a couple of hundred quid. And for me, the magic bat was a rubbish boat, the stump bat was way better. Now, I went from the big boat into the topo. And the topo's an old boat now. I'm sure people that listen to this podcast weren't even born when the topo came out. And the topo, you know, it looks like a kid drew it and it's like made of plasticine. If you're going to design a boat made of plasticine and put a smurf in it, then there's a topo, I'm sure. But it's good to get back in those boats. I remember the excitement of getting in my topo for the first time. P 
peeling out of that eddy for the first time. How slow it was compared to the magic battle of the dancer. How much it bounced around when it was in a stopper. No edges on it, no rails on it. How much it bounced around. How easily it back looped. How if you didn't paddle fast over a drop and you went deep, the chances of you back looping into that hole and getting a bit of a kick in was super high. But we paddled, I paddled the top hole and I developed and I grew and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the fact that the boat was quite indestructible. I enjoyed the fact that you didn't really have to think too much about if, if you, how you were seal launching because you had a top hole and you could basically seal launch anywhere. And that taught me a lot, paddling an old boat like a top hole. Taught me to be aware of where I was in the river because there's no way I could paddle as fast as the river in a lot of places. So I had to think ahead and move about. And paddling that boat developed my skills. There are modern boats of the same ilk that will put you in a place where you have to think much more readily than other boats. I'm thinking of a, like a big fat creek boat. Now, if you paddle a big fat creek boat on an easier bit of water, the boat will just look after you, it'll ride over a lot of stuff. But if you paddle a slicey boat on the same water, you have to think a lot more because the tail's going to catch you or the nose you're going to catch. And it's good, isn't it? It's good to explore those options of what those boats will do. When I first got my topper, excuse me, I was told that it was a bad thing to have. Bad thing to have a topper, that's it. That's not a good boat to have, it's going to spank you. And the people that told me that were right for about six months, until I dialed in that boat, until I understood what that boat meant and how it functioned. And isn't that the same for all boats? There's very few boats on the market, very few boats on the market, that you can get in and paddle well on your first time using them. Lots of boats require that you jump in that boat and you have a bit of a apprenticeship almost with that boat and you get used to that boat and how it functions you know don't expect to buy your new boat or second hand boat if you're buying a used boat and be able to go boom straight in and paddle it really well some boats work really well for one person and not so well for the other person i'm quite a lazy paddler as i've mentioned before and a boat that requires a lot of active paddling say a piranha ripper with a slicey tail, that requires a lot of active paddling. It doesn't suit my style. and I, I, I'm not saying I struggle in that boat, but I'm not com as comfortable in that boat as a boat that requires a more passive style. Something like a Wacker OG is much more passive to paddle than something like a gangster, for example. The gangster requires that you paddle it relatively fast. It doesn't like you to float around. It like we quite likes you to be uh, carrying momentum. And because I'm lazy, I just like a boat that I can pull one or two strokes and that I can get through stuff. I don't like to be constantly having to put strokes in. And I think that's down to my heritage, uh, the way I learnt to paddle. When I learnt to paddle, there was a lot of floating involved with the boats because the boats were relatively big. 
you know, so you'd float a lot and you make and because in Britain you had a big boat and a small river, you didn't need to paddle it so much, it would just float with you and you could put a few crook strokes in. When I first started paddling Whitewater, people were paddling T slaloms and T canyons, mountain back mark ones. Mountain back mark one for those that don't know, it's a lot like a fusion. Uh, mountain back never had a skeg and a hatch and deck lines. But it's a very similar sort of size. And there was a lot of backwards paddling. Paddlers would back paddle and back ferry. Because that's how they could slow themselves down on rivers, by back paddling and back ferrying into eddies. And we don't see that in modern boats, because people have adapted the skill to go forwards and carry the speed, which is really what you should be doing. You should be carrying your speed, you shouldn't be trying to go slow. The topo didn't need to be back paddled because it was so short you could spin it round and paddle forwards. But the point I'm trying to rattle on at, if there's any point at all, is this, the heritage is important. The heritage of how we get to where we are kayaking wise is really important. Whether it be how we get to where we are because of the boats we've paddled or how we get to where we are because of the rivers we've paddled or how we get to where we are because of the peer group we've paddled with. It's important to connect to those places, those people and those spaces that help us develop. If we need to change our peer group for paddling because we lack the confidence or the challenges within that peer group, that's fine, isn't it? If we need to change our boats frequently, because after our apprenticeship in that boat, we find that we really don't like it. And we sell it on and we buy a new one. That's also fine. If we find that we're quite happy paddling class two or class three, but some but our peer group tell us, no, we need to be paddling class four or class five. And after trying to cut our teeth on harder water, we're just getting spanked. And our radar of pleasure versus pain fun versus nervousness is not balancing for us then we it's okay to step back isn't it and go back into those easier wells and if our peer group want to push harder and we don't that's fine we find some new peer group to paddle with we don't all have to paddle the same water just because we all love this sport we don't have to paddle the same boats in the same styles we don't have to progress to be the hardcore paddlers. We can jump in an open boat and paddle a scenic, scenic river, bird watch. I was out the other day, strolling down the river. It's a hard river, it's a class five river, but I was out on a walk. And I saw five mink playing on the banks, jumping into the water, taking fish. I wouldn't have got that experience if that river had been running, I'd been paddling, but I went walking and I experienced those mink. Days earlier I'd been out open boating on some flat kingfishers, watching the fish swim under the boat or air bubbles coming up. And that's a beautiful thing about our sport. All these different aspects allow us to experience it in a unique way. It's important that we connect with those things and why we do it. And why we do it is different to why our friends do it and why our family members do it, if they do it at all. 
and our heritage matters. But please, if you are looking at her using heritage gear to remind yourself of where you've come from or where the sports come from, be mindful of its practical usage. Be mindful of putting images on social media of you using older gear and promoting the use of that older gear. Because it, it may be okay for you to use, but it might not be okay for somebody who doesn't understand the context to use it. Gang, thank you for listening. 20 minutes of me rattling on about something that's just been sat on my brain for a while. I hope you have a great time on the water, if you're getting out. If you're not getting out just yet, it's okay to sit back and process it, I'm sure. If you've decided that you enjoy walking and your kayaking can sit quiet for a while, then that's also fine. You guys that message me, and you know you can message me on Podbean, you can message me on social media, down Clarkson King, so Facebook, I'm sure you can find me. I won't I necessarily reply to you, but you can email me anyway. I'm Pureland Expeditions if you want to do that. But we're not talking about Pureland, are we? Thank you so much, everyone. Uh, it means a lot when you do message me and get me to do these podcasts. I hope you're having a great time and I will see you all surfing a wave or in an eddy or on that nice quiet river with those kingfishers and the mink and the fish. And we'll sit and we'll talk and we'll laugh and we'll joke and we'll all take something different and unique from these times. Have a lovely, lovely time, guys. And uh, thank you for listening. Toodle pips.